0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver, Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. First up today, we are going to be speaking to Peter lakomsky He is the newly named BC General Manager for Lyft, you know, that giant ride hailing service. They just announced their intentions to enter the BC market. We're going to talk to them about what this means moving forward. And a little later on, the Business in Vancouver technology panel featuring Progressive CEO Ali Pordet and Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Focas. We're going to be diving into everything from Disney versus Netflix, the big rivalry that's being stoked, to whether violent video games have anything to do with some of the harmful things that we're seeing down in the United States right now. Before we get there, though, let's talk with Lyft about ride hailing. So you might call it the never-ending story, but ride-hailing looks poised to finally hit BC roads by the end of the year. The province's Passenger Transportation Board begins accepting applications from potential operators on September 3rd, and one of the industry giants made it known earlier this week that it intends to operate in Vancouver. Joining us today is the newly named BC General Manager of Lyft, that's Peter Lukomsky. I want to thank you for joining us on the show, Peter. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Okay. So, first things first, you guys announced on Monday that you want to launch in quote unquote Vancouver. For me, I- I'm curious about this. Does that mean Metro Vancouver? Does that mean City of Vancouver? The reason I ask is because I think there's still a lot of question marks about the whole boundary issue that maybe Lyft is going to be curious
1: about too. Right. Well, absolutely. We- we're still waiting for the final recommendations from the PTB, but ultimately, our goal is to launch Lyft um, in as many communities of British Columbia as possible. Um, we understand that it may not be possible to launch in all communities uh, out the gate. Um, and so the Metro Vancouver area is really our area of focus for now. Um, and we will see where we can go after that.
0: So I remember just over the years, uh, one of a uh, fellow uh, Lyft people, uh, Timothy Burr, he's been kind of going back and forth. I've seen him at all kind of the uh, meetings in Vancouver, whether it's tech summits, we get to talk to him and, Some uncertainty about whether or not Lyft wants to operate in what some people are calling maybe the most stringent ride-hailing regime in North America. Why does Lyft want to operate now? What is kind of the turning point for you guys? Why does this now look like a market that you guys intend to operate in?
1: Right well ultimately um we just saw that uh, British Columbia was a market that uh, that is uh, was was so excited about ride hailing and ride sharing um and uh, and we felt uh, compelled to to commit to the market um we really saw that the values of our company really align um with the values of British Columbia um and we felt that um British Columbians deserve better So next week, I believe we're going to get some clarification from government on a lot of
0: the issues that are maybe hanging over your heads, whether we're talking about boundaries or maybe vehicle caps and so on and so forth. What are some of the things that you guys wish to hear clarity on specifically? Maybe what are some of the answers you'd like to hear from government?
1: Well, first, I think the important thing is, um, you know, taking the time to thank the, the current government for, for even just bringing this to the province. Um, I think it's important. It's been a long road um, and we're happy we're here. Um, also want to make sure we thank the, the B.C. Liberals and the Greens. They, they've been um, instrumental in their advocacy work in getting us to this point. Um, our decision um, over the last week or so to, to make this announcement um, was really based on the fact that uh, we feel that the big hurdles are are done, um, and now uh, there are details. Um, and those details, uh, there aren't any, any, any. There isn't anything in those details that we really see um, that uh, would really dissuade us from entering the market. Clearly, we would like to see uh, no boundaries, um, no caps, um, and uh, we'll keep advocating for that. Um, but uh, ultimately, British Columbians deserve ride sharing. Um, and we want to be the first company to really commit to uh, bringing this world class service to to the province. So you mentioned no
0: boundaries, no caps. The big question mark, I think, for a lot of people though, are like the issue about drivers. And we have those class four licenses. Uh, they're more difficult to get than the more ubiquitous class five licenses that most people have. Um, what is your perspective on being able to access the number of drivers that are going to be necessary to meet market demand here moving forward?
1: Right. So as, as general manager here in British Columbia, that is my biggest challenge. Um, driver supply um, is really the, um, the point that's going to allow us to determine where we operate in the province. Um, Class 4 licenses are not necessary for this. Um, Anyone with a Class 5 should be able to drive for a a uh, ride-sharing company um, like Lyft. And um, we operate and serve uh, 95% of the U.S. population under a normal license, as well as in Toronto and Ottawa. Um, The Class 4 license is unnecessary, um, and we'll stand by that. Um, That said, if that's the uh, regulation that we need to abide by in British Columbia... We're going to do our best to um, to, to really uh, make sure that we have that that supply of drivers that we need to deliver the world-class service. Um, it is going to be challenging, I believe. Um, but um, what we really want to do is is make it frictionless for anybody who would want to drive for Lyft. Uh, so a uh, Class 4 license uh, requires an additional knowledge test, an additional road test, and um, uh, we're we're going to um, put programs in place in order for that education to be available to anyone who wants to drive for Lyft. Uh, there's education programs that we're, we're going to make available. Um, we also understand that there are costs involved in that process. Um, there's a there's a medical test cost. There's a knowledge test cost and a, and a driver test cost. And uh, through the incentives that we provide our loyal drivers, we're going to make sure that those are cost neutral to our drivers. Um,
0: And how do you get the word out to people as well? Because I I mean, we don't have ride hailing in British Columbia. I've only used it because I like to travel down in the US and I I use Lyft and other services down there. But uh, tell me a little bit about how you get the word out to people as well. If you you are trying to get these class four drivers, if that's what it comes to be.
1: Sure. Well, obviously, there's a there's a lot of uh, buzz in the industry and in the province about um, ride sharing and, and Lyft's arrival here. Um, over the next uh, weeks and months, um, I think British Columbians will see who we stand, what we stand for as a business, um, and and who we are as a brand. Um, and we believe that uh, we'll be able to attract both the drivers and riders to our transportation service um, through through the brand that we present, British Columbians. I've had
0: conversations with taxi drivers that, and I won't name any companies or anything like that, but uh, they've said that they would consider switching over. Is that going to be a target for you guys? Maybe looking at appealing to some of the taxi drivers that may already have some of these class four licenses?
1: Absolutely. Um, there are a number, um, I was listening to one of the MPs last night saying, um the 150,000 uh, class 4 drivers in in British Columbia already um, let's, let, we're, we're happy to, to really, um, attract any of those drivers. Um, what we offer those drivers that are currently class four licensed is that flexible op- earning opportunity. Um, with, with Lyft, um, you can wake up in the morning, turn on the app for a couple of hours, drive for those couple of hours, turn it off. It allows you to, you know, do stuff with your family in the hours that you're not working, it allows you to build your schedule around, um, a, a flexible life. Um, and, uh, I think that, um, know, some people that I've talked to that are more uh, traditional class four operators today um, have a much more regimented life and it's a little bit more difficult for them to have that flexibility in their life. So we really want to present an alternative. We see ourselves as as part of the transportation mix. Um, So class four drivers who currently drive for uh, for whether it's taxi, whether it's uh, transport, anything like that, uh, we'd welcome them to the to the Lyft family.
0: So no doubt yet, you have to be diplomatic about everything. But uh, if we get into the real politic of it all, though, we do see a provincial government right now that very much intends to help the taxi industry perhaps coexist with these new services that we can expect. Can you point to maybe like a jurisdiction elsewhere that we do see kind of like a good coexistence between you know these ride-hailing services and the taxi industry? Is there examples of maybe... You know these services not coming in and just kind of eating up the taxi industry here.
1: Well, I think I think um, if you look at in any of the jurisdictions that we operate in, um, there there is a taxi element that um, is in those in is in those jurisdictions, um, and I think that it's important that you know to come back to the fact that we really see ourselves as part of a transportation mix. Um, if you're looking for that very spontaneous and very reliable type of service um, that um, that that is available um, through a smartphone app. Um, ride sharing is a great, uh, a great, great answer to that. Um, if you've only got cash, um, if you um, you know, know your favorite taxi rank, um, if your smartphone battery's dead, um, taxis will always have a, a, a part in the transportation mix. Um, so we really feel that we can coexist with the taxi associations.
0: I'm also curious, uh, because you guys initially rolled out in Toronto, that's where you made your debut here in Canada. Do you have any guesses about how long it would take for you guys to be able to hit the roads if you do get the nod from government here in British Columbia are we talking about maybe a a one month you know get the okay to getting onto the roads offering services are we talking about you know a couple more months or or what's your general guess
1: yeah well um, the first thing we need to do is apply for our license um, which isn't really available to us until very early in September Uh, We're going to make that license application. Um, We'll see how long it takes for that license to be applied. But really, um, our challenge is going to be around attracting drivers. Um, So uh, we will launch the service when we know that for our riders, we'll have a very high quality level of service. Uh, Once we are assured that we have a driver capacity to meet that uh, passenger demand, um, and we see where that driver capacity is coming from, um, we'll make decisions as to our operating area and we'll make decisions um, as to our launch date. Um that's a, that's, a, that's a, just a reality of our business and, and how we need to take a look at the next few months. If all goes smoothly, and I know there are still a lot of question marks, you know, how long this application
0: process is even going to take, but would you like to see yourselves on the road by year's end? Um, that would be uh, something that I'd really like to see. Okay. And Pierre, just for you though, uh, this is a newly announced position, BC general manager here for Lyft. Tell me what drew you into it.
1: Oh, um, you know what? This, is, uh, this was just a really interesting opportunity to, uh, to launch something that uh, British Columbians uh, really, really, um, I think, deserve and, and require. Uh, my background is, is in the tech industry. I've, I've spent the last 15 years living in Vancouver, um, working for tech companies, uh, really helping them grow and launching innovative products. Um, lyft is at a stage of growth a, st- a stage of launch um, and truly an innovative company in how it uh, how it has approached the transportation network um, industry um, and uh, it was a it was a natural fit when uh, when they came knocking well excellent peter i want to thank you for joining us on the show thank you very much that is peter Lakomsky. he is bc
0: general manager of lyft and stay with us the weekly biv technology panel joins us right after the break And joining us today for the weekly Business in Vancouver technology panel, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa. He's calling in. And Linda Fakas, she is here in studio. She's the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Ali, Linda, thank you both for joining us on the program. Great
2: to be here. Thank you.
0: So I want to talk about first maybe news that we got from Disney. They announced that they're going to bundle their big Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, and Hulu services for a total of $13 US a month. And if you do the math, that's the same price that Netflix is charging for, not its basic, basic standard definition tier, but the general tier that most people are starting off with Netflix. So they're both going to be at $13 US. I don't know, is this putting a whole lot of pressure on, say, Netflix to keep prices as they are for the time being, Linda?
2: Absolutely. And I think they're probably living in fear of what disney's about to do and now they the disney plus bundle is going to cost a little more if you want hulu without ads uh so i think in that world we're up to about a 20 25 dollar a month um subscription rate but to have those sports in there that is a game changer and when you're looking at the disney universe you've got marvel you've got star wars you have pixar it's a really incredible lineup for families Uh, And again, with the sports angle for people who want to see sports. So I think uh, Netflix is under huge pressure to keep that subscription rate the same. And they've been saying they're going to try to bump it up, right? They're going to try to keep raising it. So I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that successfully.
0: Well, and and Ali, from your perspective, though, I, I mean, is Disney really the only potential Netflix killer? And I don't think Netflix is going anywhere. But is it really the only potential Netflix competitor that stands a chance of actually taking on Netflix in these big streaming wars that are going on right now?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say that, Tyler. I don't think I'm ready to sort of call Disney the, the uh, outright winner of this new Blu-ray versus HD DVD war that we're, I think, about, about to enter. Um, you know, I think it's still early, and I think there's still a lot of other content uh, providers out there. Amazon is one that's obviously ramping up its content. Uh, You know, uh, and, 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 you know, there's also the incumbents, the incumbents that have had, uh, you know, the the majority of the content online, both online and on video, going back to the start of time, the Universal Studios of the World and all of these uh, other uh, entities, maybe now they roll up to Disney, I'm not sure exactly where they all roll up to, Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's still time for this war to play out, and uh, but but I I would be concerned more than just the cost if I was Netflix. And I think all of these companies not, need to start to now get entrenched and start to consolidate if they want to survive.
2: Well, now it's the war of the content creators, right? So Netflix has just brought over the Ryan Murphy, the creator for Glee, the showrunner for Glee. They've got Shonda Rhimes. They've just paid $200 million to get the showrunners for Game of Thrones. so. Uh, it's it's a race to see who can grab the talent to start building out these uh, original programming shows that is going to start to define each of these uh, streaming services uniquely. And I think you're right. Yes. Netflix is going to have its rightful place in that lineup, and I'm not sure it's, it needs to go anywhere. I think what's going to happen, for me anyway, is TELUS Optic is over, and I'm <laughs> so psyched.
3: <laughs> and I'll happily the other, pay the I money to the
2: other streaming services yeah, in place.
3: Yeah, yeah the other, i mean the other thing I'm excited about is that uh you know as these companies start to uh purchase content more and more of this older content they're starting to reimagine the movies and starting to come out with you know the new home alone the new night at the museum i mean this is pretty exciting stuff because these are all classics that I think we all grew up with uh watching and uh you know i I'd, I'd love obviously I'd love for my kids to watch the same movies in a, in a new sort of re- uh, you know redone way so that's uh i think another exciting thing for the consumer that uh that's just going to naturally happen as all this older content starts to get snapped up.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to see like Avengers Endgame, biggest grossing movie of all time now, kicking um, um, Avatar out of that role. That's going to be available on Disney Plus. So now we're going to be able to see almost just after theatrical release movies uh, on these streaming services. We're not going to have to pay somebody like Apple to view those. So. That's kind of exciting.
0: Well, the other thing that's worth pointing out, though, is you mentioned that Endgame just kicked out Avatar from that top spot. Well, guess who owns Avatar now? As after that Fox-Disney merger, it's now Disney that owns Avatar. Mm-hmm. So it, like, if you think of it, and, and like, Ali, you mentioned the back catalog that people are going to have access to. This Disney back catalog is probably the most valuable. You've got Star Wars. You've got the Pixar movies. You've got the classic animated films from disney as well i don't know if there's much competition out there with regards to comparisons just following this fox merger as well
2: basically a must-have it's streaming be- service for families yeah. right that's uh, a reality
3: yeah it's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to compete and and uh you know if, if netflix uh, as a result of all of this if netflix is just uh you know going to lose all of this content i'm not sure if it has it all on on, on netflix right now or not but if it just as a uh, as a matter of fact, starts to lose this content and it all just moves over to a different platform, then yes, I mean, Netflix is going to be in trouble. This is uh, high quality stuff, high demand uh, content. Uh, and uh, and they're going to be in trouble long term if they can't uh, you know, keep the content on their own platform.
0: Well, and that's why I appreciate, of course, Linda, bringing up the fact that, you know, you have that talent hunt that's going on and Netflix is landing a lot of big people here. Okay, so I'm a journalist. I I can't, you know, pick sides or anything like that, but would either of you guys perhaps consider going forward with maybe uh, these Disney services when they launch a little later on in the fall?
2: I'll say absolutely big fat yes, if it means I can nuke Telesoptic, especially 100%.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'm the same. I, I think the the content's probably more relevant for my family as well. Okay,
0: well, guys, uh, we'll, we'll go into a bit of a more serious topic uh, here with regards to you know the tech sector and the impact of video games on people. Uh, Following those shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, the other week, uh, we had a lot of politicians coming out and blaming violent video games for this. But look, there's a story of CNBC that uh, we were reading, and and they're talking about how there actually isn't really any evidence to back up that violent video games is, is causing a lot of these violent actions in the real world here. I remember growing up, and uh, my, my parents wouldn't let me play some of these violent video games. And at the time, I was I was kind of annoyed by it. But I guess I'm kind of thankful in retrospect. But what's your perspective? Uh, both of you guys are parents here. On just maybe exposure, would you have concerns about kids being exposed to this just on kind of a, a, a general level? Or is it not worrisome because there's really not anything backing up that this would actually lead to aggression in the real world? I, I'll start with you, Ali. I mean, it sure,
3: it sure sounds like an ex- Excuse to me. I mean, it's not great that that you have young, vulnerable, uh, um, you know, uh, people that are playing these games and and obviously learning bad habits uh, from playing those games. But you know, it's just it, it it almost it just really does seem like an excuse to me for for all this gun violence that's happening in the U.S. It just seems very politically motivated. Um, you know, I remember when the Huawei issue happened and they they uh, extradited the CFO. And actually, when they first put her in jail, we were talking about all the reasoning behind it, and we were talking about why all the media was around Huawei before that. And I and I kept referring back to political games at that time. Uh, actually, probably long before the CFO was extradited. And it, this this just sort of same feels the same way. It just feels like there's there's a very very left wing and a very very right wing in the U S. right now, and they're just looking for every, everything to tie uh, an issue to. And uh, video games has got picked on as a result of it. I mean, I I look, uh, uh, you know, I've been playing video games since I was a kid. Uh, You know, I I know many, many people who have, they're not, no one is violent. Uh, It just, um, you know, it just to me, it just seems like an excuse.
2: Yeah. And I think the, uh, I think the science, I know the science is proving out that that what was the uh, CNN report was st- citing that 2015 American Psychological Association study saying there is no statistical correlation between uh, aggression in real life, violence in real life, and video game play. So that's those are the science facts. And what we're hearing from the White House are obviously old white guys who don't game. They don't understand the culture. Um, they don't understand what gaming is. And they're just latching on. I agree with you. They're latching on to this our our problems are around video games. It's like no, it's not that simple down there. We've got they have other big problems down there. But as a parent, um, it was very disturbing for me to send my son into the world of video games. First person shooter games seemed odd. GTA Grand Theft Auto freaked me out completely. And then what I quickly realized it was the online communities he was heading into that were the places where the hatred and the misogyny and the white supremacist language and the N word were bandied about all the time. And I realize, wow, so this isn't the video game that's the problem. It's these, again, this social community that's coming together to just grab a filter bubble and hear themselves uh, talking to like-minded individuals. And and I think that's where we need to be talk, having conversations around video games, not the games themselves, because science is showing us that is not correlating to violence. But the online community of hatred is a problem. And well, it's not a good place for kids to be.
0: You, you do bring up a good point here, uh, Linda. And just think about the two BC fugitives, the, the, those young men uh, who are accused of uh, the second-degree uh, homicide of the UBC lecture and then uh, suspected with regards to the deaths of the uh, two tourists in northern british columbia i all the stories we're coming back and hearing from them is how involved they are in these online communities and, and i'm not laying the blame on say the video games that they were playing but they seem as if they got caught up with these youtube communities and as you said like these uh the communities within these gaming services and i think it's there are some red flags that must go up for a lot of people. And I think you can kind of pick it up uh, from people like who's actually a little bit more serious about this and who's really not though. And I, I think, does it come down to maybe uh, stronger households? I, I don't know if I'm sounding like super old dude Tyler at this moment, but I, I just wonder if we were hearing the stories from that and didn't seem as if there was like uh, strong family units involved with those young men's lives.
3: Yeah. It- yeah, it, I mean, in my opinion, Tyler, it's all of the above. It's it's, it's everything from education to uh, to to you know, more careful rules uh, around who can get their hands on these games, and then you all the way to the guns themselves. Uh, that they just it's just a full spectrum problem. That you know, there's examples right across the spectrum, um, whether you're focused on education or upbringing, all the way through to ease of access to to the weapon itself. It's just a, a big mess and. Uh, Needs to be evaluated altogether. It's not just one issue at a time. I mean, everything just needs to be reevaluated as as a as a a common threat and 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 with common solutions. And I think, you know, hopefully they'll come up with something. But uh, there is a very very strong lobby against this, and And it just makes it really hard hard to feel like it's going to be overcome. Yeah,
2: and we need to do that with the facts. We need to not just sort of wrap this all up into the it's the video games problem. Uh, You're right. There's just so many factors contributing to the climate in the States and sadly what we've seen up here um, a little bit. But uh, it's not going to be as easy as pulling the games off the shelf. It's not going to be as easy as Walmart just no longer displaying the the video game ads in their stores. But, you know, it's a horrible climate down in the States when Walmart has to pull these displays off because they're afraid their shoppers are going to panic at the sound of a, a gunshot on a video. Right? That's why they're pulling them off. But but they're That's not doing horrible. anything about
0: the actual gun sales at yeah. Walmart either, which is kind of bo- mind-boggling.
2: Exactly. But, you
0: know. um, well, okay. So we'll leave it off at that note. It's not the highest of notes we've ever left it off on a uh, uh, panel like this. But in the meantime, I I do want to thank Ali uh, for joining us. Ali, you've been coming and doing the show in one form or another for about three years. You're going to take a little bit of a break for a few months, Uh, a lot of stuff on your plate right now. But I I really do want to thank you for being a part of this program for and we were talking about it earlier. We can't believe it's been three years. It's gone by that quickly.
3: Tyler, it's been great. Uh, Linda, it's been great. Uh, give my best to Haley. I, I've really enjoyed being on the show and I will continue to uh, hopefully do that in the future. Uh, we'll be back online in a couple of months, as, as you said. And uh, there'll be some changes uh, definitely by then in my life, and I'm looking forward to sharing them with you.
0: I can't wait. Um, Ali, thank you again.
2: Thanks, Ali. It was Talk great. Soon. It was great Take being care. with you.
3: Thank you.
0: Take care. Bye. Uh, Cheers. That's Ali Pordead, CEO of Progressa. And also, I want to thank Linda Fokas. She's the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Linda, thanks for joining us on the program today. You're welcome, Tyler. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. It helps us reach even more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.